0: Again, so we're, we're going through the Old Testament this summer. Uh, you know, last week, Kyle pre- preached on Christ as Adam as our representative. Um, this week, I'm just so thankful to continue our sermon series through the Old Testament and helping our church understand what God is doing all throughout history. And, um, you know, this week, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 15. You can turn there now. Uh, you know, I'm not Kyle. I don't have a fun, cool story. You know, I'm not that great as Kyle is, but... Um, I'll, we'll just jump right into the text, um, but you know, right now i should begin my introduction of the passage and um, you know, what I hope we, we learn today. Uh, so the reason why our church is going through the Old Testament this summer is that I think we think there's a lot of you know, confusion in the church more broadly today in America and throughout the world about what the Old Testament is about. You know, I think a big problem we see today is that uh, some people may think that the Old Testament is just a bunch of good moral stories to teach us to be good moral people. Um, like for me, back in back in college, you know, I heard this one sermon series um, over you know the life of David. You know, leadership lessons we can learn from the life of David. And uh, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with you know gleaning leadership lessons from David's life. But you know, David's not in Scripture just so that we can learn how to be a better leader. Um, but to, you know, to give this preacher credit. Um, you know, he preached a you know, 40-something minute sermon over David and Goliath and like what, what we can learn in terms of leadership lessons from that altercation. But he, he did say that uh, the most beautiful thing about the text was that um, it points us forward to um, Jesus, the son of David, um, who, who goes before the people of God to slay our greatest Goliath, sin and death. And you know, I, after, you know, after he said that, you know, I loved that. I thought, that's great but why didn't you preach like that? Like, why didn't you preach like that was the most beautiful thing about the text? And so our preaching, our reading of the Bible, like, should not be oriented around our own agenda and what we want. Our agenda in preaching should be oriented around God's God's agenda, which is for sinners to know him and to know whom he has sent, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm not saying that, you know, our preaching here is so great because we're so great people. But you know what I am saying that is you know, God's grace in Christ abounding to sinners is so much more greater, such you know, far surpassing in worth than our own feeble good works. You know, we hope to preach like that that's true, that you know, Christ is um, the most marvelous and wonderful thing we can know and what his work has done uh, for us. And so the purpose of the Old Testament is not to teach us good moral lessons. The purpose of the Old Testament is to reveal step-by-step um, who Jesus would be and, wh- and how he would save his people from their sins. Uh, you know, Ephesians chapter 1 verses uh, 7 through 10 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins and trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So if there's always been a plan to reveal Christ and the salvation or redemption that he he would provide, then we should read the Old Testament as if that's true, as if God's working all of history, moving step by step, little by little, and revealing who Christ would be, what we could do to save sinners. So today, we're gonna see how the mystery of Christ is revealed in the Abrahamic Covenant. And so the Abrahamic Covenant, it inaugurated the kingdom of Israel. So a kingdom, it has a people and a place. And the kingdom kingdom of Israel is populated by the offspring of Abraham, and they reside in the land of Canaan. That is the kingdom of Israel. So God is gonna use this people in place to point us forward to the true offspring of Abraham, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, and how he brings his people, the true Israel of God, to the new Jerusalem in the new heavens and new earth. And so what I hope we see today is that the gospel is present in the promise of this covenant. You know, it's not like the people of the Old Testament were saved by works, but now we're saved by grace. That's not how it was and not how it is right now. So ever since the fall, every human being has been a sinner who has needed a righteousness outside of himself. He needed the free grace of God to save, save him from his sins And also, you know, Genesis 15, which we'll look at today, that is the chief text that Paul, the Apostle Paul, points to in his writings to prove that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And also related to, you know, um, how we're saved, um, at least what the Old Testament says about how we're saved, is also what the Old Testament teaches about the the very heart of God. I think there's some people who have this idea that the God of the Old Testament is angry, he's wrathful, he's exacting and merciful, and that he's just some axe head ready to fly off the handle. But what we'll see in Genesis 15 is that what we're also seeing in the New Testament. We'll see a God who is gentle towards sinners and sufferers. We'll see a God more ready to bless than curse. We'll see a God more so compassionate Towards his people that he will destroy anything that harms them. And we'll also see a God so merciful to save a rebellious sinner by the grace of Christ. And ultimately, we'll see how a covenant-keeping God promises the covenant-keeping Christ. And so with that being said, we're gonna jump into our text today. So let's look at verses one through six of Genesis chapter 15. Alright, the word God says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram, that's Abraham, in a vision, saying, fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue to Childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Uh, so we're gonna talk about covenants today and so a fair question would be to ask, uh, what kind of people does God make covenants with? So I think the answer, according to our text here, is that you know, God makes covenants with sinners and sufferers. Um, you know, what's going on in Abraham's life right now as God you know, comes to him in a vision? What's going on right now? So you know, most recently, he just won a war against a few kings in order to save his nephew Lot. So you know, while it's preferable to achieve a formal victory in war, you know anyone who's ever thought, who, who's ever fought in a war, knows that no one ever really wins a war. You know, our, our own nation has won many wars, but soldiers who come back from war, um, they're scarred for life after you know having to kill enemies themselves, seeing their, their friends killed, and even coming to a near-death experience themselves. So we can imagine Abraham and his 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 cohort have, have gone through something similar to that. And also there's the fear that these Kings may regroup and come back to, you know, destroy Abraham and his family. So Abraham may think his days are numbered right now, but the most consuming problem that Abraham has right now that's hanging over his head is that, you know, he and Sarah can't get pregnant. And this is heartbreaking to Abraham for a few reasons. Uh, to start, uh, God promised him in Genesis 12 that he would make him a great nation and that he would give his offspring the land of Canaan. And so, you know, God's promise to Abraham that, he, that his reward war shall be very great, that just comes across to him as kind of hollow to Abraham. He's exasperated, and he just prays that, he, and he prays the first recorded prayer in the Bible, you know, how will my family become a great nation if I can't even have one child? How's that possible? So he's perplexed. But setting aside what God has directly promised to Abraham, um, there's also just the basic human struggle of infertility. You know, from the very beginning in Genesis one, God blessed the command to be fruitful and multiply. So it's very good to have, to have and raise children with the one he loves. And Abraham wants this too, along with God's promise to make him a great nation and a great kingdom so Abraham is desperate. He's perplexed. Uh, he's facing his own mortality, and he's been praying so hard and so long, but like not, nothing is working. And this is probably where some of you are right now, or have been, or will be again. You know, some of you may or have been struggling with infertility. You know, for others, you know, think about any God-glorifying thing you want to happen, but it just doesn't work out and you just keep on trying and trying and trying and working and working and working and praying and praying and praying, but it just doesn't work. It doesn't make sense why this awful thing is happening to you, and you're just desperate for a change, And but you know that you just can't make change yourself. So we, we cry out with the psalmist in Psalm 31, when he says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes is wasted away from grief, my soul and body also. For my life is spent with sorrow, my years with sighing. My strength fails me because of my iniquity. My bones waste away. But this is where God prefers to work. He wants us weak, he wants us desperate and perplexed, so that that he may show that he is strong, he is in control, and that he is wisdom. It's for the very purpose that we may know the breadth and length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all understanding, even in the midst of our suffering when it doesn't make sense. So the grace of God is always dramatic, it's always stunning, it's always unexpected, and it's always beautiful. So when all all seems lost, when it all seems hopeless, the grace of God appears in a dramatic way. And so in our our text today, um, God does not answer Abraham's confused and frustrated and perplexed prayer with frustration over him, just not getting it, and just not trusting in him. He answers Abraham with his grace and his promise. He promised that he will certainly give him a son to be his heir. And so not only will he give him a son, but God will give him children that will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. When Abraham thanks his family, him and his family are dead, will die with him. God promises life to come from him. And so we actually do see fulfillment of this promise in Exodus chapter one, verses seven through eight, as it says, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So Moses, he's writing Exodus, he's writing Genesis. He intends for us to look back to and point back to Genesis 1, the beginning when he, he commands man to be fruitful and multiply. And so what I want you all to see here is that God is showing us how he's reversing the curse in Genesis 3. So we see in Genesis 3 that um, suffering and childbearing is part of the curse, yet God promises to bring forth um, from the offspring of Eve through the offspring of Abraham the one that would bless all nations with um, life and salvation. Uh, through him. So in Genesis twelve, you know God God promises that in Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so the chief promise of the Abrahamic covenant is that Christ will come forth through the kingdom of Israel to bless all nations. It's Jesus who ultimately re- reverses the curse. Jesus ultimately, ultimately fulfills the commission to be fruitful and multiply not by populating the land of Canaan by natural birth with one nation, but by populating the new heavens and new earth for the people from all nations who are born again. And so, um, you know, the, king, ki- the kingdom of Israel was meant to be uh, typological of the kingdom of Christ. And so what is, what is a type? You know, what does it mean for something to be typological? Well, you know, a type is a person, place, uh, institution, or event that prefigures and um, you know reveals you know who Christ would be and how He would save sinners and what all that would look like in the New Testament. And so, just to give an example, um, the Passover Lamb was a type of Christ. So, if you remember um, in the Passover, um, you know just as the people of Israel covered their doorposts with the blood of the Passover Lamb, so that the, that the angel would pass over them in judgment, and so that they would not die in a temporal death so also believers cover themselves with the blood of Christ so that God's judgment upon us passes over us and so that we do not die an eternal death. And so in the same way, Israel is meant to be, uh, you know, typological of the church, which is why in the New Testament we're called sojourners and exiles. Um, You know, just like Abraham who sojourned from the land of Ur, um, you know, searching for that land uh, for his people, and also how you know we're exiles in the sense that you know it points us back to how you know Israel suffered in exile in Babylon. It's also why you know Paul calls believers in Galatians three uh, the sons of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham, and also the Israel of God in Galatians six. And so while the provisional Jerusalem in the Old Testament in the land of Canaan was populated by people who were circumcised of flesh, the eternal new Jerusalem and the new heaven and new earth is populated by those who are circumcised of heart, those who are born again. And so it's this connection that we have with Israel and also the fact that Abraham was a believer in Christ just as we are um, that allows us to have hope in God's covenantal promises in the midst of our suffering. So God used what was cursed, which is procreation, to bring about blessing for the nations. He used Abraham's suffering to make him more desperate for his grace and promise. So also, you know, God lays the curse that we deserved on Christ in order that we would be saved from our sin and enjoy God forever without suffering. So, and also, but even now, God uses our suffering for our own good, our own good and blessing. You know, nothing is ever wasted. So we, we can rejoice with the psalmist in Psalm 31, and he says, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction, you have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me in the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. And so the kind of people that God makes covenants with are not only sinners, are not only sufferers, but also sinners. So these groups, they obviously overlap. We're both sinners and sufferers. We not only experience the effects of sin, but we ourselves are sinful, and we cause other people to suffer through our own sins, and Abraham, he's no different. You know, Abraham was a random moon-worshipping pagan among the Chaldeans. He lied to the king of Egypt that Sarah was his wife, so he wouldn't be killed by the Egyptians, which ended up um, with the Pharaoh taking Sarah to be his wife and, like, him likely raping Sarah, while at the same time, Abraham was rewarded with cattle and servants and earthly prosperity. And uh, he almost did, did it again in Genesis uh, with uh, the king of Abimelech. And then he also end up, ends up committing adultery with Hagar in Genesis 16, and he just like, continually distrust in the promises of God on multiple occasions. Yet, like God chose Abraham to be the father of the nation that would bring forth the savior of the world, a random moon-worshipping pagan. He chose that guy to give him that. That's such a stunning privilege. And so the offspring of Eve, who God promised to crush the head of the serpent, um, was promised to come through Abraham's offspring. And Abraham believed this promise, and God, it says, he counted it to him as righteousness. So Abraham was not justified by his works, but he was justified by God's grace alone and Christ alone and he received that by, by faith alone. And uh, this is why Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, he says this, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about before God. But he has something to boast about, about but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as his gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So we're going to look particularly at verse 5, because it's one of the most clearest verses in the the New Testament about how God justifies a sinner. It's also just the most comforting verse in the Bible, too, just for those who know the depths of their sin. So what does it mean to be justified? Well, to give a kind of a short short and clear answer is that to be justified is to be declared righteous. Justification is a declaration of righteousness. It's a legal verdict, okay? And so, but what does it mean to be righteous? What does it mean to be righteous? Um, According to Romans, um, righteousness is doing God's law. It's keeping God's commands. But it's not some doing God's law, it's not some obedience. But it's perfection. It's perfect obedience. It's keeping God's command throughout the entirety of your life, like absolute perfection. But Abraham's problem and our problem too is that um, we, haven't, we haven't only just we haven't kept God's law perfectly. Uh, we, we not only do ungodly acts, like we ourselves are ungodly. We're born in corruption, we're born in bondage to sin, and we can't free ourselves. But this text says that God declares us righteous apart from what we do uh, or who we are or what we will do or who we will be. He justifies us as we are ungodly. And that's why it says that you know, faith is counted us as righteousness, even as we're ungodly. However, you know, God does not justify us by faith um, just because, well, you know these other good works didn't work so now faith is now the only requirement to be saved. So you know, faith itself is not a meritorious act that we do to be saved. Um, you know, even our faith is just riddled with sin. We have, very, we have a very weak and very imperfect faith on this side of heaven. So also we're gonna see how even Abraham, he had a, a very weak faith in the promises of God. So it's not the faith, the strength of faith that saves, but it's the object of faith that saves, which is Jesus. The object of Abraham's faith and our faith is Jesus Christ. So God is able to declare us righteous because Jesus was righteous on our behalf. He is our representative, as Pastor Kyle talked about last week. He was righteous for us, he died our death for us, he represents us. So, with, that's, so good, that's so good news for people like Abraham, people like me, people like you, because you know weak faith in a mighty savior saves. You know, it's not the strength of faith that saves, but it's the object of faith that saves. You know, the good news of Jesus being our representative before God is that when God sees us, he doesn't see your sin, he doesn't see your failures or your shame or your insecurities, but he sees Jesus. He sees that Jesus, on our behalf, perfectly kept the Ten Commandments. He perfectly loved the Lord as God with his whole being, and he loved his neighbor as himself. Perfectly, all throughout his entire life, he did that for us. And not only that, he bore our sins on the cross, and he was condemned for us. You know, this is why in the act of justification, God forgives our sins and credits to us righteousness. And so God, he's able to justly forgive our sins because Jesus took our sins on the cross, and he, he took our condemnation and bore our wrath that we deserved for us. And what this means for you is that you don't have to live in constant shame or regret or excessive sorrow over the deepest and darkest thing you've said or done or thought. You know, As far as God, God's concerned, it never happened. You know, it's as far as the east is from the west that God has removed your transgressions from you, as the psalmist teaches us. So no, no matter how deep or dark your sin is or how broken you are, Jesus came to heal you. He came to overwhelm your sins with, with his blood. And your sin cannot outrun the grace of God in the same way that you can't outrun the East and the West. So not only does God, does God forgive our sins, but he, He's also able to credit to us righteousness, perfect obedience to God's law, because Jesus was obedient, he was righteous for us, and God counts us as, as, as if it's our own. So this is good news because we don't have to worry if we're, if we're being good enough at the moment. We don't have to worry about if we're just measuring up to what God expects of us. Uh, we, don't to, we don't have to feverishly keep doing more good things to earn God's approval and, his, and to be, for him to be pleased with us. You know, we can freely, freely walk and live in a way that pleases him, uh, knowing that it is in Christ that God is well pleased with us, and you know God says of his son, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. You know, Jesus, he is our great champion. He has gone before, before us and attained righteousness in life um, just for everyone who believes. And this is why faith, um, and this is why faith has been called arresting and receiving of Christ. Um, so righteousness is not the one who, who works, but it's the one who believes. It's the one who does not work, but rests. We don't work to be righteous before God. We rest in the finished work of Christ. Righteousness isn't due as a a reward for our work. It's a gift won by Christ that we receive by by faith. And we also need to daily come back to our, our justification because daily we struggle with sin and we struggle to believe that God really has accepted us in his son. you know. Abraham, even Abraham, he struggled to believe that this was true of him. In Genesis chapter 16, the chapter right after God promises him this covenant, um, and after God assures him through his covenant of the promise of the son, um, he listens to the voice of his, of his wife Sarah in taking Hagar and trying to get the promised offspring through her instead of Sarah. And so where else have we, have we seen a man listen to the voice of his wife? We, we see that in Genesis chapter, two, Genesis chapter 3 when, uh, when anyway, Adam listens to the voice of Eve and taking the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so this is actually an intentional by Moses. We're meant to see a parallel here. But you know, you know, the problem here is not that women are dumb or stupid and that men just need to lead them around and tell them what to do. I mean, that, That's not what's happening there in, either in Adam's case or in Abraham's case. You know, the problem is that Adam and Abraham listened to the voice of their wife instead of the voice of God. They listened to man instead of God. That's that's the problem here. So the problem is that they didn't believe God. That's why that's condemned and seen in a very negative light by Moses. So in fact, even, even Paul in Galatians 4 uses the Hagar disaster as an illustration of unbelief and trying to be justified by works and the folly in that. But the good news is that God did not revoke his promise to give Abraham offspring um, just because of their sins. Ultimately, both Adam and Abraham were saved by the last Adam, the offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ, who always listened to the voice of his father. And he always did what was pleasing to him on Adam and Abraham's and everyone who believes behalf. So the good news of the gospel is that you can't sin your way out of God's grip on you in Christ. Your righteousness is in heaven, and, it's, and he is seated in, in indestructible power at the right hand of God. That's where your righteousness is. It's not with you in your, on earth in your weakness, but it's found in Christ in heaven for you. And Paul teaches the, teaches us in Galatians 2 that you know, that the life that we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. So, again, we need to daily, every, every breath we draw, we should come back to the fact that our righteousness is outside of us in Christ. It's not found in ourselves. And so it's just, it's, it, we should always come back just to the very heart of Christ and loving us and to and being, him being a tender friend to poor sinners like me and like you. And so it's just it's such good news that Jesus loves us and He's a friend of sinners and that He'll never be pushed away by us by our sins, and so He'll always remind us through His His Holy Spirit that we have an advocate with the Father, who is righteous for us and pleads on our behalf. And so yeah, let's let's move on to verses uh, seven through sixteen. Uh, the assurance that God's covenant gives. Already, verse seven. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out, of, out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So this verse right here, verse 7, is meant to hearken us forward to Exodus chapter 20 to the preface of the, of the Ten Commandments when God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So Israel's deliverance from Egypt parallels Abraham's deliverance from the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. So, this is meant to be kind of a proto, a first Exodus, um, which gives context of the graciousness of God in making this covenant with Abraham. So, let's move on to verses uh, 11 through eight, 8, 8 through 11 now. Um, but Abraham said, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon and he brought him all these, cut them in half, lay each, each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away." So we see here is that Abraham wants assurance that God's promise will come to pass. So in response to, the, in response to that, God makes a covenant with Abraham. So you know, what, what is a covenant? You know, you know, quite simply, we can define a covenant as an agreement. It's an agreement between two or more parties. Um, and you know, another you know, another and equally good way to define a covenant is given by an Old Testament scholar named Meredith Klein. He he calls it a divinely sanctioned commitment. Uh, yeah, divinely sanctioned commitment. And so sanctions they they formalize the commitments made in the made between the parties of the covenants. So although the relationship um, between the parties is formalized, it doesn't mean that they are, they, they're made stale or lifeless. Um, there's still a real, genuine relationship. But, but really, the, the, the formalizing of the commitment enhances the relationship, because now the parties of the covenant have to keep their commitments, have to keep their obligations. So, um, the chief example, the chief analogy the Bible has for describing a covenant is, of course, marriage. So if you think about, think about marriage for a second, um, marriage is a covenant. In marriage, you swear an oath before your family, um, before your friends, but most importantly before God, um, the creator of marriage, to you know, leave your father and mother and to hold fast to your spouse and to love them alone and um, love them to death, love them, love them until death. And so marriage formalizes the commitment made between a man and a woman who love each other so although their commitment hasn't been formalized, it doesn't mean their love for each other has, has now therefore grown, grown stale or lifeless. I mean, that's not how it happens, you know, you know that. So the but actually the marital covenant enhances the love between a man and a woman. You know, your, your boyfriend or girlfriend, they can tell you they love you all the way they want, but they have no obligation to actually follow up on what they just said. And so, and when they don't, it just leads to lots of heartbreak. But when, you, when y'all are married, I mean, they have to follow up on that commitment to love you. They're obligated to love you. And that leads to a, a flourishing marriage. So obligation is, a, a, it's a good thing, you know. We, I mean, we, we were created to have obligations and to fulfill our obligations to one another. That's part of what it means to be made in, in God's image. And so once we do that, when we do that, it, it enhances our environment. It leads to flourishing. But when we don't, it destroys our environment. It leads to pain and suffering. And we see that in our world today. And so this is, this is why uh, Tim Keller, he defines covenant as a, uh, you know, a deep union between two parties and a bond of love, which is more binding than a personal relationship, more personal than a legal relationship. And uh, you know, particularly with the Abrahamic covenant, this is a, um, a self-maledictory oath. And so what that means is, um, as we see in this text, the reason why these animals are split in half um, and that God alone walks through them, um, this is the the show that, you know, like God's basically telling Abraham, you know, uh, just as these animals are, they're cut in half, you know, so shall I be if I do not keep my covenants to give Abraham offspring and to give his offspring the land of Canaan and to bring the Savior of the world through him. Like God saying, okay, I will be like this, this slaughtered animal if I don't keep my covenant with you. That's what he's saying with the, this, this covenant ceremony of splitting the animals in half and him walking through the animals. So God threatens his own death if he doesn't keep his promise to Abraham. So those, those sanctions formalizes his commitment to Abraham in this covenant. So as we know, God is the author and sustainer of life. It's impossible for him to die. And not only that, it's impossible for God to lie, since he's the very source of, of righteousness. And also, God is unchangeable, he's immutable. So therefore, his, his purposes can never change. They're, they're, they're unchangeable just as he is, unchangeable. And uh, this is actually why the author of Hebrews, um, he uses this covenant ceremony in chapter six of his, his, his letter um, to give Christians assurance. They're struggling with assurance, they need assurance, and how can we have it? We, we find it. in God's faithfulness to keep his covenant. And this is what he says in Hebrews chapter 6, verses um, 11, 11 through 18. He says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to make more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope that set before us. So there's, there's a whole lot to unpack in, that, in those, those seven verses. You could take a whole sermon, uh, but just, just to summarize here, um, what, what, he's, what he's saying here is that you know, just as God was faithful to create the kingdom of Israel, uh, to give Abraham offspring and to land of Canaan, to bring Christ through them, so also he'll be faithful to save us from our sins um, by the salvation provided by the offspring of Abraham, the final and greater high priest, the final and greater sacrifice. In Christ, he has bound himself to his bride, the church, everyone who believes in Christ, and he will never forsake her. He'll never forsake us, but he'll always hold fast to us. That's God's covenant of marriage with his, his people. And again, as we'll see in verses 12 through 17, uh, God's covenant is good news for sufferers. So let's look at verse 12 now, 12 through 17. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, "'Know for certain that your offspring "'will be so generous in a land that is not theirs, "'and will be servants there, "'and they will be afflicted for 400 years. "'But I will bring judgment upon the nation that they serve, "'and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. "'As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. "'You shall be buried in good old age, "'and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and flaming torch passed between these pieces." So what we see here is that this is a prophecy of Israel's slavery in Egypt, but also it's a promise of the certainty of God's deliverance of Israel from her bondage. And God keeps his word Um, as is written in Exodus chapter two, verses 23 to 25. uh, During those those days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the, the people of Israel and God knew. So when God remembered his covenant with Abraham, it's not like he forgot his respons- responsibilities, and now he's like, "Oh, okay, now I got it. Now I'll, I'll get back on it." You know, he's not—that's not what's happening there. So, what's intended by this language of remembering is that you know God Himself—he intends to act upon His covenantal promises, and also um, he, He's going to show He's not going to forsake His people. Um, so, you know, Ortland—he has a good thing he says about this—is that you know, remembering is not uh, opposed to forgetting; it's opposed to forsaking. God's not going to forsake his people, but he's going to embrace his people through remembering his promise he made to them in his covenant. And also, when the text says that God saw the people of Israel, I mean, it's not, it's not saying that God simply observes the fact that they are suffering, that he's far off, and he just says, he, 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 yeah, I see you, you're over there. No, it, it implies God's heartbreaking gaze over the tears of his people. And when the text says that God knew... It's not talking about the bare intellectual act of his mind to remember and to see. Uh, This is the same Hebrew word used in the Old Testament for when a a husband knows his wife and they have a child. So this word implies God's intimate and tender care for his people in the midst of their their suffering. And so the way that God will, will redeem his people from bondage in Egypt, according to our text in Genesis 15, is, is through his judgment upon Egypt and all the nations in Canaan. And so um, you know, God's, gonna come, God's gonna come in wrath against Egypt and Canaan, uh, not because he's trigger happy, not because he delights in death, not because he's an ax head ready to fly off the handle, but he's doing this for the sake of, the lo- of, of loving his people. Um, you know, God's judgment upon Egypt and Canaanites, it points us to the final judgment, when all sins laid to bear before God and God justly rules against sin um, and righteousness. Again, all sin will be dealt justly on the last day. And this is good news for believers in Christ because that's where God is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. He's going to come in judgment, and he's going to wipe away every tear through our eyes through that judgment. So all injustice and all suffering that we have experienced, um, it will be wiped away forever. You know, the final the final judgment is good news for those who believe in Christ and those who are in Christ. However, judgment day should bring fear to those who are not in Christ. I mean, for those who are outside of Christ, there's nothing to look forward to but, you know, God's final condemning verdict upon your life and that you will be sent away from the presence of the Lord where I mean he alone has life and blessing and salvation in him. And that's that's the bad news of being sent away from his presence is not being cut off from life, being cut off from blessing, being cut off from every good thing you could experience. But the good news of the Gospel is that just as the nation of Israel was brought out from the the land of Egypt, so also the true Israel of God, the offspring of Abraham, to bless all nations, was brought out from the dead to eternal resurrection life. So in uh, in Matthew's Gospel, the Gospel according to Matthew, in chapter two, he actually applies the word of God in Hosea chapter 11 to Jesus when he says, out of Egypt, I called my son. So Matthew, he's identifying Jesus as the Israel of God. So Jesus, he not only suffered for our sins um, so that we not have to fear, he suffered and died for our sins so that we we don't have to fear judgment day. But not only that, he was raised from the dead so that we would enjoy everlasting life in the presence of God forever. So just as Jesus, the Israel of God, was brought out from the dead to eternal resurrection life, so also the church, all those who are united to Christ, the true Israel of God, faith, um, they too will be brought out out from the dead to eternal resurrection life, not in a earthly, um, you know, provisional Jerusalem in the land of Canaan that was destroyed eventually, but in an eternal new Jerusalem and new heavens and a new earth that's indestructible and that can never fade away. So just as Israel's exodus from Egypt was by God's grace alone, so also the church's exodus from this present evil age, from this fallen world will be by God's God's grace alone. So let's close with with some final thoughts on the Abrahamic Covenant and its its goal in Redemptive history in uh, verses 18 through 21. So verse 18 says, "'On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, "'saying, to your offspring I give this land, "'from the river of Egypt, the great river, "'the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, "'the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, "'the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, "'the Canaanites, and the Gergashites, and the Jebusites.'" So this land promise here in this text, it's not waiting to be fulfilled. There's not going to be another future fulfillment of this land promise in an earthly Canaan, okay? So there's not gonna be a day when God reestablishes Israel according to the flesh in the Jerusalem in in this present Middle East today. Uh, There's not not gonna be another temple, there's not gonna be another priesthood or a sacrificial system, Um, that has all passed away now. and so. And even the, the Old Testament, it identifies that this, this land promise was fulfilled in Joshua 21. Um, you know, it says, um, Thus the Lord God gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest from on every side, just as he swore to their fathers. Not one of their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies in their hands not one good promise of the Lord that he had made of the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. So we see here that not, not one good word of the Lord failed. So right now there's nothing special about this 21st century Israel in the Middle East. So Israel, I mean, they're, they're just another, you know, geopolitical nation like the United States. So your support or your lack of support for Israel should not be based upon what you believe about the Abraham covenant, you know, Um, It should be based upon uh, different things, you know, different considerations. And also, there's nothing really special about practicing Jews today. Um, Judaism is no different from any other false religion in the world. It's no different than Buddhism or Islam. It's the same, it falls into that same category of false religion, because it's it's, it's, it's entirely foreign to the Old Testament religious system. I mean, there's no temple, there's no sacrificial system, there's no David a king or theocracy. Um, It's just not, it's not there. And so it's, it's, you know, today's Judaism is so foreign to the Old Testament. And you know, that's for a good reason actually, because um, disinheritance from God's covenant promises was always a threat of the old covenant. So even in the Abrahamic covenant itself in Genesis 15, um, you know, God threatens that all the uncircumcised would be cut off from Um, the people of God. So, and also in the the Mosaic Covenant, as the Apostle Paul emphasizes, um, you are cursed to be the everyone who does not do all things written in the book of the law, as Paul Paul points out in Galatians 3. And in the the Davidic Covenant, the king is threatened with exile along with his people for disobedience. And this explains why that John the Baptist in Matthew chapter three, verses nine through 10, he says, uh, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these, these very stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid root at the trees. Every tree that therefore does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. So why is John the Baptist saying that now in his time, the axe has laid root at the tree? You know, this is because the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, is about to be inaugurated by the king himself, Jesus. Jesus himself, he is the end of the Abrahamic covenant. He's the end in in that he is the goal of the covenant, and he's also the end in that he brings finality to the covenant. So the Pharisees and Sadducees, they can't presume to have Abraham as their father. Um, They can't presume that just because they're united to Abraham um, by the flesh, they're also united him by, by faith. So the, the kingdom of Israel was constituted in the Abrahamic covenant for the very purpose of bringing forth Christ. So once that purpose was fulfilled, once Christ came, you know, the full weight of the old covenant curses fell upon disbelieving Jews in the destruction of, of Jerusalem in AD 70. Like God's threats finally came to pass. But the good news of the gospel is that, you know, as the Apostle Paul teaches in Galatians Galatians, um, 3 and 4, is that it's those who are of faith that are sons of Abraham. Ultimately, Abraham, he was not looking for an earthly Jerusalem, an earthly land of Canaan, but he was looking for a new Jerusalem and a new heavens and a new earth. And Romans 4 actually teaches us that it's the world that was promised to Abraham to be his inheritance. And so the land of Canaan was only meant to point forward to the new Jerusalem, the new heavens new earth. It wasn't meant to be an end to itself. It's pointing to the end, but it was not the end itself. And so unfortunately, um, you know, many of, of Abraham's descendants did not believe. And uh, Sam Renahan, he's a theologian, he writes, as Abraham trusted in the son of his covenant, he became a child of his son's covenant. As Abraham looked past the earthly blessing, blessings to heavenly ones and believed in them, all Israel is called to do the same. But they were so pleased with their menus that they didn't want the food when it arrived. So the call today is to believe in Christ, Jesus Christ, the offspring of Abraham. It's in him alone that, that the curse of God is reversed, and that we have life and blessing in his name. You know, as the Christmas hymn says, joy, joy to the world, it says that he has come to make his, his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. said in him that all the nations of the earth is blessed. It's found in Jesus alone, the true offspring of Abraham. And so you can have joy in the midst of your suffering because the covenant-keeping God and the covenant-keeping Christ has bound himself to you and that he will never leave you. He'll never forsake you in your suffering. And you can have joy in the midst of your sin and in the midst of your struggle with sin because Jesus has taken away all of your sins. He's laid them on him and he has given you his righteousness instead. And he'll never leave you in your sin and he'll always bind himself to you and love you forever. So let's pray. Father, praise you that you chose uh, weak and rebellious sinners like us to make your power known. You know, we, would just, we would have remained in darkness of idolatry, of hopelessness, of shame, if it had not been for your grace in Christ. Uh, praise you that you care for your children who suffer. You are a good father and who cannot bear to stand far off as we suffer, but you send your Holy Spirit to comfort us in the love of your Son, who suffered for us and now suffers with us. I pray that we can look to a new heaven, a new earth, in your presence forever as we, just as our, as our greatest, greatest hope in the midst of all the suffering we go through in the life. In the midst of our suffering right now, in the midst of our sin, uh, you know, make your face shine upon us in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, your eternal Son. You we know, praise you for your, your goodness and love that you have shown to us and made manifest in your Son. Amen.